0: Take that Bible and uh, turn back to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, we are continuing in our exposition of John's gospel, and we come to John chapter 4, a familiar text to, I'm sure, many of you. On the, the woman at the well, or Jesus with the woman at the well. Sometimes we refer to her as the woman at the well, or we refer to her even at times as the Samaritan woman. And really, when you look at the argument in John 4, provided by John the Apostle, he really is directing this argument from chapter 4, verse 1, actually all the way down through verse 45. And so it's a long section, and there's different parts of the woman of the well. And so we come to that wonderful account. And as we've looked in recent months, John demonstrates, again in this passage, and has that Jesus is the Son of God. He has been stating for three chapters that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, Savior, alone is is the one who provides eternal life. And certainly as we walk into this text, the main principle here is not the woman, it's Jesus. Her conversion to Christ, which will come later in the chapter, certainly must be observed. But the main focus is Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, if you glance down in chapter 4, verse 25, The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And here's the key statement. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. There's the key phrase. That the very one talking to her at the the well was the Messiah. What's amazing as we come into chapter 4 is John the Apostle has told us that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's God himself. John the Baptist has told us that he's God and the Son of God. Uh, The disciples have told us that and now you have our Lord's very own testimony that he is the one that is the Messiah. Now, the passage reveals a a number of things within it as we go through. Certainly, it reveals our Lord's profound understanding of human nature. We saw that at the end of chapter 2, that he knew the hearts of all men. He knew what was in them. As we got to chapter 3, he knew the hearts of Nicodemus. He was aware of who Nicodemus was. And certainly as we come to chapter 4, he can look into the heart of this woman and know it when, she, when he told her to bring her husband. And she said that she doesn't have a husband. And Jesus said to her, you said correctly for you have had five husbands and the man you are now with is not your husband. And so it reveals a profound insight into human nature. In addition to that, we also know that that love that he declared in chapter 3 for the world, if you will, is now demonstrated as he reaches out to what is known as the Samaritan woman. And to say the word Samaritan, as you'll see in just a little bit, it put her as an outcast. And I'll explain why that is. Now, as you think of the transition from chapter 3 to chapter 4, the accounts of Nicodemus and actually the account of this woman differ greatly. I mean, obvious, Nicodemus is a man, and here she is a woman. Nicodemus, if you will, could be said to be searching. He came at night to Jesus. This woman is not searching. In fact, frankly, she comes off at the beginning as rather indifferent. So Jesus sought her. He was, Nicodemus, a recognized ruler. She is a a despised Samaritan. He came from nobility. She was immoral. He had a name, Nicodemus. She is nameless. He was powerful. He was influential. She was an outcast. And yet the truth that emerges is that both needed the Savior to forgive their sins and to receive eternal life. Now, as we approach the text, there's so many different ways that one can take in a story like this. And there's been books written on the Samaritan woman. And there's evangelism tracks put out on this. And I, I suppose we can get there practically, but really what I want to do this morning is as always at Grace Church, I just want to take you directly to the account itself. And then after looking at the account itself, maybe we could put together some practical steps from this marvelous testimony of Christ to the Samaritan woman at the well. I might ask you this question as we approach the text. How did Jesus approach people with the gospel? How did he approach them? Certainly he approached this woman. In fact, he asked this woman for a drink from the well. And so it will tell us how we might be able to approach the people we interact with in our own life. I mean, what can we learn from this account? I see four vital principles here from 4, 1 through 15 that reveal a seeking Savior and the sinner's plight, okay? Four vital principles that reveal a seeking Savior and the sinner's plight. And I think they're going to come up on the screen for us, and we'll just look at them in consecutive order. First, I want to look at his realization and his route. His realization and his route. In fact, I, did, I purposefully didn't read the whole account to you, because I kind of want us to discover it as we go this morning. So let's look first at verses 1 and 2. It says, now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. It says there in verse 3, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Let's look first at his realization, okay? You remember when we were looking and studying in chapter 3, we saw that a rivalry began to develop between the disciples of John the Baptist and it says a Jew. In fact, just glance back at 325. It says there, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness... Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And so there, a a little rivalry began. And we looked at that a couple weeks ago. The disciples of John the Baptist saw that Jesus was now having the greater influence than John. I don't think that should surprise us. First of all, this is the word of God that became flesh. In addition to that, as he was in his Galilean ministry, Jesus began to perform miracles. And so it was the anointed one that pointed the way to the Messiah. John the Baptist says, there's the Lamb of God, go follow him. But even though he pointed to Jesus, some of his own disciples were still holding on to him. And as time began to go, Jesus was baptized. And he makes it clear here, actually, it wasn't Jesus. For two, it was his disciples. Now, I think you know, and certainly you've been in Christ a, a long time. It shouldn't surprise us that he drew the attention, because I could ask you, how many, how many miracles did John the Baptist perform? Maybe you've never thought of it. Well, it's John the Baptist. Well, zero. There's not one recorded miracle in all of the New Testament that John the Baptist recorded, him, recorded doing in that sense. Certainly he came out, he was a fireball, he preached repentance and all those things. He baptized and he was preparing the way for the Messiah. The Messiah comes, they begin to follow him, he's doing miracles, and now they're beginning to leave him. So rather abruptly on this realization in 4.3, it says that he left Judea and he departed again for Galilee. Now, it mentions there in verse 3 that he departed again for Galilee. That's not hard. We know from chapter 2, verse 12, Jesus had begun part of his ministry early on in that region of Galilee. In fact, it's from 143 down through to 12. And so now it says that he leaves Judea and he begins to go north, if you will, to Galilee. And he goes north. I, I was going to put a map up here for you. Maybe we can show you that next time. He, he goes north up to Galilee. And I think he does to avoid the conflict. He does so because he wanted to avoid the conflict, certainly with John the Baptist disciples. And now in verse 1, when it says that he learned that the Pharisees had heard this, he knew that the Pharisees would begin to use this to exploit the situation. And so this was not the time for conflict. In fact, what's intriguing as you study John's gospel is that Jesus had a keen sense of the Father's time. And and he was aware of that time. In fact, let me show you that. Look over at chapter 7, verse 6. And I'm kind of just showing you why he vacated. And at this point was to avoid the conflict. Obviously, at the cross, he was not avoiding that. But in chapter 7, in verse 6... Um, it says, he said to them in 7 verse 6, My time has not yet, what? Come. And, and so he had a very great realization, uh, pushing towards the cross in 7 6, that his time has not come. Glance down in your Bible in verse 8 of chapter 7. 7 8, he said, You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully come he was very aware of where he was at this early stage in his ministry and so he left his time had not come he didn't want that conflict he wanted it on his own terms and his own plan within his within the father's will glance down at chapter 7 verse 30 It's interesting, it says they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come, the hour of his suffering. And so it doesn't quite say what happened, but even if they wanted to arrest him, they couldn't arrest him because remember some of those times in the gospel, he just slipped out of their midst. So even if they tried to, his hour had not yet come. Look over to chapter 8, just the next chapter. In 820, it says these words in 820. He spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him. Why? Verse 20, because his hour had not yet come. Oh, he was very aware of the Father's timetable, of the Father's will for him. One more passage. Go over and look at the distinction in John chapter 13. Look over at John chapter 13. It was the feast of the Passover. Look at 13.1 before the feast of the Passover when Jesus, watch the change of language, knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. He knew it had come. And so he had been moving ever since that point to the hour and to that cross. And so with this realization, beloved, he departs Judea and he travels north, if you will, to Galilee. Look back at John chapter 4. So he stated this first main principle was his realization and his route. Now look at the text in four. He leaves that area. He goes to Galilee, verse 3. Verse 4, the language is interesting. He le- it says he had to c- pass through Samaria. Okay? Now, if you've been to Israel, and some of us have, there's, there's a couple ways you can look at that. He had to pass through Samaria when we well know, if you looked up on a map today, he didn't have to pass through Samaria. He could have left Judea to go to Galilee north, and he could have went route one, let's just call it the, the western route that would take him by way of the seacoast. It's a little longer. He could have left Judea, went west a little bit, and then up and around and got to Galilee. That's one route. There was a second route, though you could go, instead of going west towards the sea, you could go east, if you will, just a little bit, cross the Jordan River, and go through a town called Perea, and then get to Galilee. But the third route, if you will, from Judea to Galilee was the straight route. It was kind of the the main artery, if you will, to get to Galilee. Now, I would add that that straight route is the shortest route, okay? But what's interesting is, I'll explain in a moment, there were many Jews who in their effort to go to Galilee would never come, if you will, through Samaria. They didn't want to go through Samaria. They wanted to avoid Samaria. But beloved, listen, not our Lord. And I think there's something more here in 4.4 than just the geography. Look again at the text. It said there in 4.4 that he had to pass through Samaria. And I really believe that John the apostles giving us an insight here. In other words, he had to pass through Samaria because there is a divine appointment in Samaria. In other words, he had to go that route according to his father's will because he had an assignment for him in Samaria. And once again, beloved, just from a quick takeaway here, our Lord Jesus Christ is seeking and saving what? The lost. He's going after lost people, according to Luke 19.10. And our Lord, I believe here, goes out of compulsion, not out of convenience. He goes because he's compelled to go. In fact, the reason I say that, Look towards the end of chapter 4, at least the end of this story. In 434, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And so that's where he's going. He had to go through Samaria. Now, let me just explain this just a little bit from the scripture. You can well see there that he had to pass through this town of Samaria. Let me just tell you a little bit about Samaria because it will help you understand why our Lord passed through and maybe even reveal His own heart and certainly the heart of God. Samaria. Don't know what you think about it, but in the Old Testament, when the nation of Israel was divided, do you remember that? After the reign of Solomon, there was a king by the name of King Omri, and he named... Syria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. So remember when they split, 10 went north, 2 went south. and, and, And here, Samaria became the capital, if you will, of that northern kingdom. You remember then, though, that the northern kingdom, in absolute disobedience to God, that northern kingdom of Israel was taken captive by a country by the name of Assyria. And that took place in 722 BC. And you can see that history in 1 Kings chapter 16 and in 2 Kings chapter 17. And so as Assyria moved in and took the northern kingdom captive, they took away and deported, if you will, imagine, thousands of Jewish people, out of Samaria, okay? They didn't take everybody. It's interesting. They took the wealthy Jews. They took the aristocratic Jews. They took the the ruling Jews and they left in Samaria as Assyria occupied it. Some of the, the poorer Jews, they left in Samaria. And as they did that, then they brought foreigners from Babylon and they were brought to Samaria, so that you now had people who were Jewish and people who were foreigners coming into this area, and over time, they begin to intermarry with the Israelites. And beloved, what happened is they begin to form a mixed race. And these racially mixed Jews were the Samaritans. They were part Jew and part Gentile. And to the Orthodox Jews, who were at once taken away and deported, those Samaritans were seen as outcasts. They were tainted. They were compromisers, if you will, to those people who were pure Jews. And, and to make an understatement here, it created a tension between the Jews who in time returned from captivity, and the Samaritans, who were a racially mixed people. In fact, beloved, do you remember in the book of Ezra, when the Jewish people were returning to rebuild the temple in the days of Ezra and in the days of Nehemiah, there was opposition, do you remember that? To the building of the temple. Remember that? You say, well, who was the opposition? The opposition was the Samaritans, and it was head up by a guy by the name of Sanballat. They opposed the work being done, and when the Jewish people and when the Jewish leadership refused the opportunity to help the Jews, which they really didn't want to, rebuild the temple, the Samaritans built their own temple on the Mount of Gerizim, if you will. In other words, they built their own temple. Glance down in chapter 4 in verse 20. Remember when the woman at the well said, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, 420. You say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Do you understand? Our fathers worshipped the, fa- the Samaritans at Mount Gerizim. Okay? And that was started back in that whole uh, process there. And what the Samaritans did, I'm just giving you a quick history, is they took and recognized only the first five books of the Bible. Those first five books of the Bible we call the Pentateuch. And they only recognized those as authority, but what they did is they added to those books of the Bible to legitimize, if you will, their place of worship on Mount Gerizim instead of Jerusalem. And what happened is this tension and this infighting and this inbreeding, which we well know today all over the world between people and ethnic groups and cultures and all that stuff just became worse over time. In fact, in history, in 108 BC, zealous Jews from Jerusalem who were just zealous, we know them as the Maccabees, and there was a man by the name of John Hyrcanus, he he captured a town actually in Shechem in 108 BC and he destroyed the Gerizim temple. In other words, they just couldn't stand that these people who were part Jew would actually worship at a different mountain than, than Jerusalem itself. And so they went in and ransacked and destroyed that temple. And so the bitterness ran deep between these parties. In fact, Josephus, the great historian, made this statement. He said, during the period of unrest that followed the deposition of a man by the name of Archelaus, and this was in 6 AD, he said the Samaritans became so aggressive that they came, imagine this, privately into Jerusalem by night, and when the gates of the temple were open just after midnight, they entered and scattered dead men's bodies in the cloisters to defile the temple imagine that. I mean, the most sacred holy place, they brought dead people into like the outer court, he called them cloisters, the outer court, and they spread dead men's body parts in that temple which led to a civil war and then the Romans had to step in to stop that and intervene. So listen, beloved, when I mentioned that he went to Samaria, you understand that he is going into a part that some Jews would avoid altogether. In fact, there was a Jewish prayer that said this, quote, and Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection." I was just bold. I mean, Lord, we're just praying. Don't remember those people. Have mercy on us, but them, no way, you know? Beloved, do you remember just in different places in the New Testament in Luke 9, do you remember when the two disciples, John was one of them, when Jesus came into that village and the village refused Jesus and the two disciples wanted to call fire down from what? Heaven and consume them? Well, beloved, listen. That was a Samaritan village. It's a Samaritan village. They rejected the Son of God and the disciples just wanted to torch him on the spots. In fact, the Jewish people even said to Jesus in John eight forty eight, they said, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? I mean, that was just, to a Jewish person, the greatest insult. Are you not a Samaritan and you have a demon? In fact, the conflict was so severe that we'll see in just a moment that the woman at the well was astonished in verse 9 that Jesus would even speak to her. So it just gives you a little bit of a context there. So look back at verse 4. He had to pass through Samaria. Verse 5, he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Verse 6, and Jacob's well was there. Okay, he comes to a place called Sychar. It's in Samaria. It's just a little town near this place called Shechem, and it's at the base of Mount Gerizim. Today, if you went over there, I want to be clear on here, the town is intact today, but it's, it's called Askar. A S. K-A-R. And I just want to be clear, that's not Asgard. That's from Thor in the comic books, okay? But that town today is called Ascar A-S-K-A-R. And so he goes to that place, and verse 5 says, it's near the field, watch this, that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And a, and a well was there. I don't need to take you back, but in Genesis chapter 48 and verse 22, Jacob had given a piece of land to his son Joseph on his deathbed if you will that he had purchased from the children of Hamar or Hamer in Genesis 33 okay and as he purchased this it became part of their property and the text says as you can see it Jacob's well was there and if you went to the city of Askar it's by all known archaeologists, this well still exists today. And so he's moving, he's on the move. This is his, his, uh, his route, if you will. It says there that he came to that town and that he was there at Jacob's well. So look at the text back in verse 6 again. It says Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well and it was about the sixth hour. Verse 7, and a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, you'll note there, just in the text, Jesus has been walking. We think maybe roughly, I close, if he's leaving Judea and he's going to Galilee, it's about three days. Okay? Now, he didn't walk three days, so he's making little stops along the way, but it's the sixth hour, which we know, according to Jewish time, is 12 noon. Presumably, he had left at, the day, at daybreak. He's probably walking and hiking something close to 20 miles in that time. And so it's about noon, and he is tired. It says very clearly in the text, he was weary from the journey. And a woman came to draw water. Now, I don't want to make too much of this before you this, this morning. She came as a woman to draw water at noon. Now, that usually doesn't happen. I don't want to look too far into the text. Usually, if a woman was coming to draw water, she would either come early in the morning or she would come later in the evening. But she comes alone and she comes at noon. And there's a number of commentators that think there's a reason why she came at noon. Some people think she's shamed, that she doesn't want to show up with other people that are there. I mean, maybe if you've been married five times and the man you're living with who's not your husband, number six, you have a testimony. And it's very possible that as he comes to this well, she comes to draw water at noon and there is a possible sense Of shame. It's possible that she's an outcast. In fact, other uh, scholars have made the investment this might not even be the closest well to her. There may be a closer well, but she comes to this well known well and uh, she's drawing water. And though Jesus, beloved, we know this, is God in the flesh, he is flesh. He's tired. (laughs) He's weary. That's what the text said. It is a small picture here of his humanity. He's weary from his journey, verse 6, and he's sitting beside the well. In fact, that well is still there today. You can imagine a well. There's just a round circular part around it, and he's sitting on that frame at this time. And what's amazing is Jesus makes the request. Look at the text in 4, 7. She came to draw water, and Jesus said to her in verse 7, "'Give me a drink.'" Verse 8 says, here's a little footnote, "'For the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food.'" So I take you from his realization and his route to this. Secondly, second vital principle, his request and her response. His request and her response. Here is his request. We just saw that. Give me a drink. Now, beloved, just stop there just for a second. That is shocking in this culture. Absolute shocking. Number one, he's speaking to a woman, which some rabbinic Jews forbid men from doing that when you're outside of your own family. But he's speaking to a woman, and he's requesting something from her. He says to her in this request, give me a drink, and he's requesting that from a Samaritan woman. Listen, I'm telling you, many Jews would rather be ravaged by thirst than to speak to a Samaritan woman. In fact, there were strict rabbis that forbade forbade other rabbis, did you know this? To greet women in public. In fact, the Pharisees, Amongst some of their contemporaries, have you heard this? Were called the bleed, the bleeding and the bruised Pharisees. Okay. And they were called that because when they saw a woman in public, they would cover their eyes just to not look at a woman, and when they covered their eyes, they began to run into the walls of the houses. And so they coined the term, they're the bleeding and bruised Pharisees, because if they saw a woman, they had to either cover their eyes, look away, and they often ran into stuff, and so they got that name. So, beloved, listen for a known rabbi, if I use that word, for Jesus, who was identified as a religious leader to speak to a woman who was actually shamed, was unheard of. The disciples had gone to buy food, as I mentioned. He's there alone, and he asked for a drink, From this woman. That's his request. But would you note here her response? Look at her response. Verse 9, I hope it makes sense. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Okay? I mean, again, it's shocking. Shocking. I mean, you should see some of the things that people wrote about the, the, the women of Samaria. In other words, you couldn't even talk to them. You couldn't eat from one of their vessels. If you ate from one of their vessels or talked to them, you would be considered in the Jewish uh, temple service unclean, okay? In fact, a Jew who drank from a Samaritan vessel was ceremonially unclean. You know, it's interesting People's picture of Christ. Look at verse 9 again. It says, how is it that you a Jew? I think that's kind of interesting there. Uh, She mistakes our Lord for a common Jewish man when in fact she is speaking to the creator of the universe. It's unbelievable. She doesn't know that. And often people that we pass, often people that you meet, they don't know who Christ is, she thinks he's just a common Jew. But look what Jesus said to her. Look at his, his revelation. Look now, verse 10. He answered her. He said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you the living water. And so I take you here to third principle here is his revelation and her rambling. He's going to give her a revelation of who he is. He, he speaks, you can see it there, in verse 12. It, it speaks there of the living water, excuse me, in verse 10. He speaks of that living water, and we're back at water again, are we not? Do you remember water is used throughout John's gospel? Remember when they were dealing at the wedding, and, they, and he made more wine? But he looked over at the Jewish purification pots, and he said, fill them with water. And in other words, Jesus' water had turned into wine because Jesus is far superior than any kind of purification rite that the Jewish people knew. Then when you come into chapter 3, he told Nicodemus, you must be born again and you must be born of water and what? The Spirit. And we noted there that the water was cleansing from the Old Testament in Ezekiel chapter 36. Now as you come into chapter 4, he's not only far superior, listen, to the water of purification. He is the fulfillment of Ezekiel 36 to be born again and to be cleansed with a spiritual metaphor of cleansing. But now as you come to chapter 4, his water is far greater than any water that would ever come out of Jacob's well. And so this is the revelation here, okay? He would give her living water. Now, let me just take a moment here. In the Old Testament, there was a rich meaning to living water. In, in fact, just to be concise here, the prophets, specifically Zechariah 14, Ezekiel 47, they spoke of a time where living water would flow out of Jerusalem, if you will, in the time of the millennial kingdom. God himself is said to be the spring of living water. Jeremiah 2:13, do you remember that where it says that God, it just defines him there is a fountain of living water. But remember, he went on to say they had forsaken me, the fountain of living water for broken cisterns that yield nothing. And it shows the picture of people who try to pursue happiness apart from Christ. God himself is the living water. And sadly, he said to the nation of Israel, they have hewed out for themselves broken cisterns which yield no joy. So this is a rich metaphor. Do you remember in Isaiah 55, 1, when he invited, did the writer, did God, did the prophet, that all who were thirsty... Come to the waters. And so it was a picture of salvation. But beloved, living waters in the Old Testament was also a reference to the Holy Spirit. Isaiah said this in 44.3, that I will pour out water on the thirsty ground, and he said there, and streams on the dry ground, and then it said this, I will pour my spirit Upon your offspring. And so there's a rich, rich metaphor here in the Old Testament that it being God is the living water. That the Holy Spirit is the one who provides that living water. And in fact, it's also a metaphor for spiritual desires. Certainly some of you remember Isaiah 42 as the deer pants for the what? The water brook. And then that image, so my soul pants for you. And then the psalmist said in 42, my soul thirst for God. Psalm 63, my soul thirst for you. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and what? Thirst after righteousness. And so this wonderful metaphor of living waters spoke of the knowledge of God. It spoke of the grace of God of God that he provides. It spoke of the grace that comes through the agent of the Holy Spirit to the believer. Now, beloved, all that to say that Jesus now, in this under wonderful, wonderful revelation, identifies himself as the living water. He is the living water. And in this picture, he's saying to you, he's saying to this woman, that I am the picture of eternal life that eternal life comes through me. It's mediated by the Holy Spirit and only Jesus provides this. Because whenever you find water, even literally or spiritually, there is life. And here is eternal, spiritual life. She is talking to Jesus who won't just give her physical water, but who will give her the spiritual water that she needs. In fact, look down at verse 14. Whoever drinks of this water that I will give him will never be, what, thirsty again. Keep going in 14, the water I give him will become in him the spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so the water, Jesus, is the living water, and this water is eternal life. So here in the midst of this third principle, he, he gives her a revelation. And then look back now, attached to this is, Her rambling, her rambling. He said, I'll give you living water. Look what she said. It's a wonderful dialogue. The woman said to him, sir, is what she called him. You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get that, you know, that living water? Uh, She's rambling, is she not? She doesn't comprehend what our Lord is saying to her. It's like Nicodemus who said, wait, time out, Lord. I got to go back into my mother's womb a second time. Here she's rambling. She thinks it's physical water and clearly does not understand how Jesus could fetch his water without drawing it out of the well. The well is deep. So what would they do? Well, you just picture they got a bucket and they got a rope on it and they take the rope and you know it goes down. In fact, there are people today who said this same well is still 100 feet deep. In other words, that well goes down and under that well is a spring and there's a spring and, and ever since Jacob dug it, there's been a spring underneath and that well provides and it's providing today, they would drop the bucket on the rope and they would fetch up water and she wants to know, how are you going to get me the living water? You don't have in, nothing with to draw with. That well may be well over a hundred uh, feet in length and she's kind of expecting a negative answer. Look at her rambling goes on in verse 12. Are you greater? <laughs> it's kind of funny for us looking back, but are you greater than our father Jacob? And in and, and the Greek language, it's expecting a negative answer. You're not, okay? He gave us, verse 12, the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. And are you greater And so our Lord answers, and I bring you to the fourth and final principle, is his reply and then her reaction. What did did he say to that? He replies, and then she gives her reaction. But look at our Lord's reply first, verse 13. He said, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of this water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Beloved, our Lord is addressing here the impartation of eternal life that comes through the power and through the agency of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would come and provide people, provide you with the hope and the reality of everlasting life. It doesn't ever mean that we're never dissatisfied. It doesn't mean that every time in our life we're perfectly content. But it means that when you come to Christ and when you give your life to Christ, he becomes in you a well of water. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life and he abides in you and he fills you with joy and he fills you with the hope of eternal life. His Spirit grants you the assurance of no condemnation before Uh, you know, before God as you stand before him. It is the hope here of eternal life that Christ gives. In fact, it speaks of that in Isaiah 12 and Revelation chapter 17. It is an inner satisfaction, beloved. It is a new heart. It is a desire to obey God. It is a desire to please him. And often when you see that phrase about welling up it's used in the book of acts of the holy spirit who would fill people for a certain task it is a wonderful picture here he said if you knew who was asked who was going to give you the gift it's she's speaking to god in the flesh She's speaking to the one, to the second person of the Trinity who grants, if you will, the power of the third person of the Trinity to come within the heart and change someone and give them the hope and the reality of eternal life. See, but look what, how she reacted. Look at verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Uh, she she reacts. I think she's still maybe a little bit confused here. I I think she's still missing a little bit the spiritual analogy much like Nicodemus. I think she still appears to be, she's beginning to be open to Christ but she's talking about physical water and our Lord is addressing spiritual water. He's addressing eternal life. In other words, the water that Jesus is offering is better than the water of Jacob's well. He says, once you drink this water, you will never thirst again. Let me show you one key passage, and we're close to being done. Look over at John chapter 7. This is so important. I'm mentioning the Holy Spirit, but it says there in John 7, you've seen this, on the last day of the feast, and I'm in 737, 737. On the last day of the feast, the great day, watch the words here, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Then he appropriates it. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of what? Living water. Now, watch the divine commentary in verse 39. This he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were yet to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. We understand that. While he's there, he's saying, when I leave, I'm going to give you the paraclete. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And you remember, of course, when you get to Acts chapter 2, when the church formed, the Holy Spirit came down and the church was inaugurated with 3,000 people being saved on that glorious day where they spoke in tongues and that text where it was a known language and the church started. But this is soul satisfaction forever listen Jesus is a gift and Jesus is the source of life let me just ask you just a few things by takeaway for you okay and maybe it's appropriate because sometimes when I read these other works I'm like I just want to know what the word says and once we know what the word says maybe I could throw just a few takeaways to you today the first step is this just recognizing I, I don't mean to be captain obvious but okay um uh he, he cares for lost people. He went through Samaria. He cared for others of different race, of different ethnicity, of different color, didn't he? He had to go through Samaria. He crossed racial boundaries. He crossed ethnic boundaries. He crossed culture boundaries. He saw beyond this, didn't he? He took the gospel to her. Truly, God loves the world, stated in John chapter 3. So he sends his son through Samaria. And that was the action. Beloved, certainly you remember Acts 1-8. You shall be my witnesses in Judea and Where? Samaria to the end of the world. This is the heart of God. Is it your heart? I mean, I'm, I'm, asking, I'm asking all of you. Is that your passion? Is that your heart? Are you comfortable in K-Town? Are you comfortable in Reedley? Are you comfortable in, in Visalia? Are you comfortable in Fowler? Are you comfortable in Dinuba? Or do you have the heart of Christ? Because if you have the heart of God... He went through this place to minister to this people. He cared for people and I say, "Lord, help me have that heart that you have for people." Secondly, not only did he care for the lost, but he connected with her, didn't he not? You say, "What do you mean he connected with her?" He opened his what? Mouth. He initiated with her. He said, "Give me a drink." Who are you going to talk to this week? He started just with a simple request. Can you do that? Can you give it a try this week at school? Can you give it a try this week in the workplace? Can you give it a try this week at the ball field? All I know, students in here, wherever school you go to, you sit to somebody in front of you, somebody on the side of you, somebody on this side of you, and somebody behind you. You moms got people in your neighborhood. You dads, you got people on your ball team. And all I know is he connected with her. And I'm just saying in my own heart, how are we going to connect with people in the same way? He opened his mouth. Give me a drink. He made a request of her. And just, it's a simple principle. He cared for her. He went through the artery and came to this place. And then he connected with her. And thirdly, listen, he, he's sovereign, is he not? And even though he's sovereign, it's not a deterrent to his personal evangelism, is it not? Just as she was placed in our Lord's path, there are place, people placed in your path today. I believe that. I'm not trying to be weird. I just believe that every day we wake up, there's somebody to share the good news with, isn't there? And, and I think, I remember one time a guy who was a gifted evangelist at a church that I was working with in Chicago. I said, dude, how do you do it? I said, you're just talking to everybody, which the answer is he's just full of the spirit, right? But he said, oh, Scott, 90% of my evangelism is prayer. I'm like, prayer? He goes, yeah, all I have to do is pray in the morning that God would give me opportunities, and he brings me opportunities all day. And he opened his mouth. And so remember I told you a couple weeks ago, I'm coming out of the car, and I really didn't want to open my mouth to that guy, even though I looked in his eyes, and I thought, this guy needs the living waters. And so I had to open my mouth, and I opened it with this one. Hey, that's your work truck, isn't it? Yeah, that's my work truck. And then he went on to tell me he's a welder. And listen, he needs Christ. This community in which we live needs Christ. He cared for people. He connected with people. And he never let sovereignty deter him from personal evangelism. I read a story this week by Pastor Stuart Briscoe. Some of you know who he is. He's an older, respected pastor. And one time he was at a Cape and Way Bible school teaching, and that's in England. And he and his wife were separated from each other for a day. And he had left um, her the car, but he accidentally had taken the keys with him. And so after a couple of hours, his wife Jill borrowed another car, and as she was driving down the road, she saw some girls hitchhiking, okay? So she picked them up. It might have been... A few years back, you'd have to think twice about doing that, or, or maybe you should do that. I don't know. Um, so she saw three girls, and she picked them up, and she was driving them down the road. And uh, these three girls were German girls, and they were visiting England. And she presented these girls to come with her to a conference for German Christian young people. And one of them was interested. She was a theological student in Germany. She had come under the influence of some teaching that instead of leading her to intelligent worship of God had filled her with much doubt and confusion. So frustrated was, was she that she delivered an ultimatum to God whose existence she doubted. She told God, that this one girl, that if there was any way that he should show herself in to her in some way, and that if he would do that, that God must do that within three months. If he didn't, this is what she told Stuart Briscoe later. She said, I'll quit my schooling, quit theology, quit religion, and I think I'm going to quit living because there's nothing uh, to live for. And after she explained that, she turned to Stuart Briscoe and his wife and with great emotion said, three months is over today. That was a divine appointment. Divine appointment. God uses things like that, doesn't he? He uses you in the process. And I'll tell you just this, from my heart to yours, there's one thing that will kill our church and it's comfortable Christians. And I don't want to be that way, do you? And I know you don't, and I don't want to be that way. So listen, let us have the heart of the Savior who reached out to lost people, connected to lost people, and was used as a tool, if you will, to fulfill God's sovereign plan. You say, well, well, what happened next? Well, look at it. 4.15, the woman, she said, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Verse 17, and Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. Whoa. You say, well, what do you think about that? Well, that's, that's next time together.